Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next. Before we get to my interview with the director of Three Identical Strangers, Tim Wardle, have you subscribed to the show? Have you reviewed it recently? Well, I think you can only review it once. But have you reviewed it? Have you given it a five-star rating? Well, if none of these things has happened, or if one or maybe two of them have happened, you can do the rest at comingupnext.com.au. This show comes at you for free each and every week, and you can support it by subscribing, by rating, and reviewing the show. What's going on friends? Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. A big thank you to Tim Blackwell for coming on the show last week. Tim has an extraordinary story about a career in radio if you haven't uh, checked it out comingupnext.com.au is the best place to find it. The uh, The whole back catalogue of uh, episodes are available for you to download all of the podcast rambles that you want. Uh, and while you're there, like you heard at the head, you can, uh, you can subscribe, rate and review the show. There's a, uh, there's a little documentary boom that's happening the world over at the moment. And uh, it's kind of, I mean, Icarus brought it in. And uh, if you haven't listened to my interview with the editor of uh, Icarus, Christian Clobber, it's, uh, it's available from a few weeks ago. Uh, Icarus was, I guess, uh, on the kind of crest, but there are three uh, documentaries out at the moment which are really kind of uh, making a huge wave at, uh, at the US box office. They are, of course, Won't You Be My Neighbour, um, RBG, and Three Identical Strangers. And this week I have uh, the great pleasure of speaking with the director of Three Identical Strangers, Tim Wardle. Now, Three Identical Strangers is uh, it's an astonishing story. It's about three men who, uh, who make the chance discovery at the age of 19 that they are identical triplets uh, who were separated at birth and adopted to different parents. The trio's joyous reunion in 1980 catapults them to fame, but it also sets off a chain of events that unearths an extraordinary and disturbing secret that goes far beyond their own lives. It's just been released in cinemas in Australia, so if you uh, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend seeing it. Uh, no spoilers in this interview, though, so uh, Tim and I get into it, but uh, but it's not going to ruin anything um, if you do listen on. Tim himself is a BAFTA-nominated documentary director and executive producer at award-winning production company Raw. Three Identical Strangers has quite extraordinarily uh, recently passed $10 million at the US box office and uh, with its upcoming release in Australia I was super keen to uh, to get on a call with him and he very uh, graciously off, uh, got up at uh, the crack of dawn in London to have a little philosophical ramble. So here it is, coming up next with Tim Wardle. <music> Congratulations as well on uh, on all the success of, of Three Identical Strangers. As as someone who uh, is also 
working in the documentary space, it's been really uh, amazing to see this kind of uh, documentary boom that's happening, particularly in the box office at, um, in the States around, you know, a few documentaries that are making waves, including uh, Three Identical Strangers. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been crazy. I mean, we, we didn't think that the film would get into Sundance, um, and, and since then it's been been just surreal um as you say docs seem to be having this incredible uh, boom in the u.s at the moment three of them have made over 10 million dollars at the box office which for documentaries is is pretty unheard of yeah absolutely and and i suppose the the life of the film uh you know it, it's still having its festival life while simultaneously um making a lot of money at the box office people are people have quite an appetite for uh you know good documentary storytelling right now i think so i mean i think that um obviously the netflixes of the, the world have kind of made um uh that, that kind of sort of factual storytelling um acceptable and available to the masses uh and i think that that, that has had some effect but i also think that um the documentaries that that have done well this year in the states are ones that um aren't just um films about issues they're, they're films about um you know they've got real human stories at, the, at their heart and they've got a lot of emotion in them and i think that those are the films that have been that they've been playing well yeah uh, you know looking back over uh, the previous films uh, documentaries that you've made and the stories that you seem to have an interest in telling are really kind of grounded in that um human interest or uh kind of psychologically driven uh stories is that something that you've always been interested or fascinated with i think so i mean i i really admire filmmakers who make um films about issues and and and, um kind of you know social issues in the world but i've always felt that they documentaries should have character and story at its heart to really work um and uh without that they kind of lose my interest uh, quite quickly and you see a lot of films at film festivals documentary films you know they've got a great issue that they're trying to tackle but there's no story and there's no character um and they lose me pretty quickly um so i you know my past work i said the other thing that that, that ha- there's a sort of common thread through the, the work that i've done is i think looking at morality and looking at the gray areas of human behavior and when people do um you know when decent people do bad things what what are the implications for them and 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 the guilt and the and the repercussions for for everyone um around them yeah absolutely and i think you know the the things that people connect to in the story is the character they're not necessarily or they may they may have a, a particular interest in um in what the issue is but it's through the eyes of the character that you're likely to find that emotional investment. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that obviously it's got a very tabloid kind of headline, three um, brothers separated at birth and, and reunited when they're 19. Um, and and, and that, that may get people in, but I hope they'll sort of stay for the um for the for the character development and and the way the story unfolds you know the one thing i'm really proud of with this film is is the kind of storytelling and the pacing and the way that it it peels back layers of the story like an onion kind of thing um and and myself and the editor work really really hard on that yeah and i think that uh, i mean it shows for sure you know it's kind of takes a a course that you're certainly not expecting um and there seems to be a really strong uh, development in I guess documentaries broadly speaking again 
uh, in the way that they're presented and the way that they're being cut, you know, looking at something like Icarus as well, where, you know, it, it appears to be a film about one thing, but actually as it kind of unfolds, it becomes about something else entirely. Absolutely. And those are the documentaries that I love. And I, I, my background as a, as a filmmaker was much more kind of observational um, and kind of verite filmmaker type person. And, and, and one of the, the reasons that I went to the company that, that, that made this film raw, they made a documentary called The Imposter a few years back. Um, and, and like uh, Three Identical Strangers, it has elements of kind of dramatic and, and genre kind of storytelling in in the filmmaking and i really like that i think documentary is a broad church and you can combine um filmmaking techniques from all kinds of different genres and, and areas uh, of the craft so i i really um I, I really think it's important that documentary doesn't just have a, a one particular way of presenting itself is documentary something that you always wanted to be working in filmmaking something you always wanted to be doing kind of growing up as or is it something that you came to a little bit later I, I always wanted to be a director, um, but I, I wouldn't say documentary particularly. I mean, I, I was a kid, I was just obsessed with narrative features, um, particularly American um, movies, um, not necessarily good ones, but kind of genre <laughs> films. Yeah. Um, and, and then as I got older, um, well, as I, I, you know, I started off in the industry um, working on uh, a series for Channel 4 uh, is a national broadcaster in the UK um, called Coming Up which had all these new directors new drama directors and I, I was just like an assistant kind of thing um, but they had people like Andrea Arnold who um, has made things like Red Road and um, American Honey um, and it just sort of opened my eyes to to what was possible and then after that I kind of fell into documentaries and I, I love docs and I've, I've you know made some of my best friends in documentaries and it's taught me a lot about filmmaking but I always wanted to um, sort of try and combine um, elements of drama and elements of sort of more traditional documentary making. Right and that's kind of uh, converged I suppose with Three Identical Strangers. I, I think so I mean what Three Identical Strangers has as I say is a, is a is a kind of surplus almost of, of story. A lot of documentaries will have an issue and I'll have character, but quite often story is the hardest thing because, you know, in real life, story doesn't evolve that quickly. And unless you have, I don't know, you know, like 10 years, like Hoop Dreams or whatever to, to, to make a film, um, you don't really get kind of strong change in people's lives. But this this was so rich with story, this, this particular subject that... Um, it just seemed crazy not to go full um, sort of Hollywood in some places on it, you know, and really play the twists as, as, as strongly as they could be played and really play the, um, the, the unfolding of the, of the narrative as strongly as possible. Do you remember what the first thing that you ever made was as a young filmmaker or someone maybe just even just messing around as a kid? I mean, I made a terrible uh, short film drama, silent drama in, in at college um, about uh, a mermaid, uh, which is is ca catastrophically bad. I haven't watched <laughs> it for about uh, twenty years, but um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't one of those precocious kids who was like shooting everything. I, I think if my parents had had a video camera, I would have definitely. Um, tried to do make little shorts and things like that but I was more a more a watcher than a than a maker early on and it was only you know when I, I got opportunities in the in the actual industry with with a you know small budget to, to do little short I made a couple of short films for Channel 4 that was that was the time that I really sort of took off in terms of filmmaking right and do you think that you're 
I guess, years of uh, being a bit more observational and, and just kind of sitting back, look, looking at films or looking at, I guess, the way that people were behaving uh, set you in good stead for becoming a observational documenta- documentary filmmaker. I think so. I mean, I think that, you you know, to be a good observational filmmaker, you have to have an interest in people's lives. And you also, the, the, the further I get into my career, the, the more I realise you have to just have a sense of what the kind of emotional truth you're trying to tell in the story is. Because if you've just got contributors in your in your films who just um, who just recount the story, uh, you, you can get a very accurate um, portrayal of a story and, and, and all the pieces that you need to tell it. But if it's just a kind of flat retelling, it's always it's never going to it's never going to really connect with people. And actually, what you're looking for far more than kind of narrative fidelity is is a kind of emotional honesty. And and you can't force that. You need to have some kind of connection on and off ca- ca- uh, camera with your contributors and they they have to bring that and I, I was really worried with this film that i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna get that and and th- because they were very difficult people to film at, the, the, at various times uh, and you know we kept on thinking are they even going to turn up for for half the interviews the brothers um but i was yeah the brothers particularly you know and they've been burnt a lot in the past um by the media and it's also you know it's a story that it, has happy moments but also has sad moments as well and I, I was just really worried that they weren't going to be honest about how they felt about stuff but the incredible thing was that them and their their families were just willing to go there and that's why that's why you know the, you can have that connection with them when you watch the film because they are laying themselves bare yeah i guess there's difficulty with uh documentaries where the subject may have too much self-awareness or awareness of how narratives uh, play out and it may end up uh, kind of diluting the impact of of, of honesty. I, I think you're right and particularly where uh, subjects in, in films have told their story a lot as as the brothers in my, my film have. You, there's a real risk that you, you just get their kind of media retelling of the story um, rather than it kind of fresh and 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 I was I was really lucky I mean I think that they hadn't told their story for quite a long time um and we got them it took five years to develop the film and we got them to a place of of trust with us as filmmakers that where they would they would go to those places but it, it wasn't you know you, sometimes you don't know until you you turn the camera on and that was definitely the case with this film right so how did you arrive at the point of I guess one deciding that you wanted to tell this story had I guess how did you even discover the story in a kind of modern context and how did you learn or uh, understand the way that you wanted to tell this story in other documentaries as well well I think I always wanted to make a film a feature-length film that would play in cinemas and people would go and pay money and go and sit in the dark and watch it and and I, I spent a lot of my career kind of waiting for that the, the story that was right to, to, to do that with. And um, as well as being a director, I, I, I worked a lot in development in, in the TV industry in the UK. So um, I was head of development for the BBC and various uh, independent production companies, including Raw. And that, that job basically means you're the you're a kind of ideas guy, you know, you sit in the office, people pitch you ideas, you do, you kind of work out which, which are the strongest ideas to take to broadcasters and try and get funded. And you get very jaded doing that job. I'd seen hundreds of ideas. You, you, you're so cynical. You're like, Oh, I've seen that one before. I've seen that one before. Um, 
And then one day this producer brought in uh, a kernel of a story, um, just a rough outline of the brothers and, and the, the, these, these three identical triplets separated at birth and reunited at the age of 19. And instantly I was like, this is a, I've never seen anything like this before. This is the single greatest documentary story I've ever come across, probably narrative story even. Um, and instantly I was like, I have to, we have to get this commissioned. And at the back of my head already, it was like, I have to direct this. But it, it wasn't a straight journey to doing that. As I say, it took, well, it took about four years to get off the ground uh, in terms of funding, but also winning the brothers uh, round and getting them on side and all the main contributors. But then also, uh, I was definitely never going to be the first choice to direct this. I mean, they uh, a film like this, you know, budget over a million dollars. Um, they would in, initially, you know, there were much bigger documentary names than than me considered. But in the four years that it took to get it off the ground, I slowly kind of made myself indispensable to the to the project to the point where I couldn't really be kicked off it. To be honest, it was a bit sneaky. Um, and then they um, had you managed to do and that? They gave gave me a shot just by you know if you're if you're the the center person for all this information you know the 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 contributors know you um you know the story inside out you know it's a very complicated story going over like 60 years um you know i knew that inside out uh, i was involved in getting the funding together it just becomes there's a point where you're the obvious sort of choice or at least one of the obvious choices and um i just got myself to that to that position so what year was it exactly that the idea was first brought to you in that office? It was 2012, um, midway through 2012. And um, yeah, 2017 before we were in production. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, and then it, de- it debuted start of 2018. So, I mean, it's a properly, I, you know, like I... I, I got engaged, married, and had a child in the, in the space it, t- it took me to get the time it took me to get the film off the ground. It's 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 pretty incredible, I guess. Going back to what's happening with documentaries at the moment, it feels in a sense almost like this is where documentaries are sitting right now is kind of where indie film at in the early '90s was sitting, um, where you know there's that kind of blood, sweat, and tears to get something up, but there's a real opportunity and possibility for people who have good storytelling yeah i mean I'd, I'd love to think that's the case i mean it's it's i mean it's a huge privilege as someone who's, who's only ever had stuff go out on television before to watch an audience sit in a room particularly people who don't really know the story and watch them kind of discover it and and go through all the emotions that the characters in it went through as they as they experienced them for the first time um and I think it's interesting with documentaries. I think it may be some kind of reaction against the big Hollywood tentpole movies. You know, I mean, I love um, I love the, the Marvel comic universe and all those kind of films, but there isn't much um, to kind of there isn't much in between. You know, you've either got that or you've got kind of I guess really arty little films. And I, and, and I guess these kind of documentaries are combining the kind of um, storytelling ambition of those big very slick hollywood films with real life and i think that's quite an intoxicating combination um and i think people are hungry for stuff that feels real and feels um intimate but is also entertaining and i think it's very interesting the docs have cut cut through are like that and there's, there's a real snobbishness in the documentary world about 
you know, there's a certain way that documentaries should be told and that you shouldn't use pop music and that you shouldn't um, have flashbacks or whatever. And um, those traditionalists would, would probably look at my film and think, oh, he's got some reconstruction. Oh, you know, there's music. You know, I, I really disagree with how that film's made. It's against kind of documentary ethics. But I think it's really important for documentary to attract a, a wide audience or the widest possible audience that it has to embrace storytelling techniques that have been refined through through decades of um, centuries of drama absolutely so when the story was brought to you in 2012 uh, you said it was i guess in a kind of infantile uh, stage in terms of the development of the piece how much of it was presented to you and obviously we're you know without going into detail because we don't want to um, spoil anything but how much was presented to you and then how did you start digging into uh, what was going on around that time around these guys it was the story was originally presented to me um, with a reasonable amount of detail about the first third of the film which is the, the, the third I feel kind of comfortable talking about without giving away too many spoilers which is that there were these three triplet brothers separated at birth raised by different families who were completely unaware of the existence of the other brothers uh, who then found each other by coincidence uh, in uh, New York in 1980 at the age of 19 um, became famous through their reunion um, and became this kind of um, became these kind of icons in New York for a brief period of time but I also was aware that there was a kind of darker story behind their separation um, but not not all that much more than that, and, and and that's the kind of mystery that we set out to um, uncover in the film. Uh, not only uh, what happens next after these brothers uh, are are reunited, but also why were they separated in the first place? And as you were digging into that sort of stuff, I guess uh, in like in real life as opposed to in the way that the story unfolds or does the story kind of unfold in a similar way to the way that you discovered the information? Well, I think that there's two parts to it. There's two, there's two it's unusual for a documentary in the sense that it combines uh, two quite distinct types of storytelling. So you've got the past tense storytelling, which is kind of, you know, we know this story, we're going to tell it as well as we can. Um, there's, you know, we'll, we use uh, interview archive reconstruction and we'll really craft that. And then you have the kind of present day story, um, what we call actuality, um, sort of observational filmmaking where you're just following things as they happen. Those are two quite distinct styles of, of filmmaking. And actually one of the biggest challenges was to get those two two bits to work together. There's a, there's a moment in the film where the characters in interview suddenly stand up and walk out of the interview. And, and that was really important as a moment of kind of almost decompression between these two very different styles. But in terms of what we knew, I mean, we knew the backstory pretty well, although I still, when interviewing people, discovered more and more details about it. But in terms of the present day stuff moving forward, we have no idea. Uh, where that was going and actually that was a huge challenge that was one of the reasons it took four years to get the funding was that people kept saying to me well, what's the third act of the of the film and i would say well it's a documentary you know we, we we don't sometimes you don't know where things are going you know i here are some ideas about where it may may end um but certainly some of the things we discovered and some of the events that happened um were not at all what we expected when we started the film yeah right and how did you go about getting getting the brothers on side and, and building a rapport with them and then going after some of the um, people who were around at the time who would who, who comment on it or who 
give information that kind of furthers the story. Getting the brothers on side was the, was the single biggest challenge to getting the film off the ground. They were very reticent. They, when they'd had their brief moment of fame in the media um, spotlight, um, they a lot of people had promised them things. I will make a movie out of your life and all this kind of stuff. And I think that they were um, just very jaded and not very. Uh, Trust, uh, trusting of people and it, you, you, when you see the full extent of what's happened to them in their lives you, you kind of um, get a sense of why they might find it hard to trust people um, and that just winning them round was was kind of um, a process really um, spending time on the ground with them um, speaking to them on the phone uh, slowly building up their trust I think the fact that we were British people making the film actually helped because it was a sort of slight curiosity factor like why are these people from london interested yeah. in our story slightly disarming it's slightly disarming and you can ask as a foreigner you know it's really good actually as being an outsider quite often in documentary because you can ask really dumb questions that if you were american they'd be like why are you asking me that we all know this you know for example like the different areas in the film uh, quite a lot uh, of players made of the the different areas that they grew up in you know one's middle class one's upper class one's one's kind of blue collar working class and if you're an American filmmaker, that would just be assumed knowledge. They just say, "Well, everyone knows it." They wouldn't even mentioned it. But with me, they felt they had to explain it, which was really helpful because that's what an audience um, needs—that that kind of stuff explained. Um, but as you said, the the other people that were important were those kind of ancillary characters. I think quite often overlooked in in documentary making. You know, the secondary. Um, supporting cast who kind of um, are able to embellish and give perspective on on story, and they were they were crucial. We didn't know any of them when we started the the process um, five years ago, and um, they they really kind of elevate the film a lot. And also the people who were involved uh, in the brothers' separation, uh, we had no idea any of them would talk. There's a lot of um, secrecy still around the separation, and a lot of um, a lot of real reticence to talk. So getting them on side as well was a, was a huge kind of coup for us, but it was, yeah, it was, it, it took time and we were lucky that we had the time to win the trust. And actually probably once we start to start to sit down to sat down to film with them, the fact that we spent so long earning their trust was actually a really good thing. If we just rushed into it and started filming them straight away, I don't think they would have trusted, trusted us anywhere near as much as they did. Yeah, I guess you can only build that sort of rapport over a long period of time. I, th I think so. I mean, I think trust is central to documentary making. You know, you're put in such a position of power as a director um, that, and, and most people realise that that once you, you know, once you have the the power to edit someone, you can make them say pretty much anything if you wanted. And so, trust is really key to to making sure that um, that that people feel comfortable giving you that power um and and time is a the biggest factor in earning trust yeah you mentioned earlier that you kind of had a surplus almost of uh, of story threads i guess to to dig into with something like this how did you decide which threads you were going to include in the piece uh when the film sort of was coming together it was really tough to decide which which story threads to include and which to cut out i mean it yeah, as I said, there is a there is a, I see it as a surplus of stories. Almost some people said there's almost too much information in there, and that was a really conscious choice. You know, I I I would rather have a film that's kind of bursting with ideas and plot lines than one which just doesn't have enough, which is something I see a lot in documentary. 
Um, there was a lot of pressure on us to, uh, at various points, to make it into a series, like a short series on Netflix or whatever. Um, and it, it could absolutely have sustained that. But I'd, I, I was like, I'd rather have a really kind of rocking 90-minute film where there's just so many different story ideas and themes and going on than stretch something out as far as it can possibly go. Um which is interesting, you know, I think on Netflix, actually, you're seeing now increasingly rather than having um, eight part series, you know, they're making them three or four because they realize that stories are being stretched perhaps a bit further they can, than they can leg- legitimately go. Um, in terms of working out which ones to, to, to follow, I think, I think it's a sort of an instinctive thing. I mean, what we had was the, we had the overarching kind of story of the brothers um and their families that we we always knew that was the main kind of story arc and that was the focus but then we also have this thematic arc which is this idea of nature versus nurture which is the central kind of thematic idea of the film um that was also playing out across the 90 minutes as well we knew we wanted to move from from one of the, one end of the spectrum to the other in terms of that um so it was just a case of like interweaving those and making sure that everything spoke to those two two ideas one narrative one thematic and if they didn't then it, you have to be brutal and you have to just lose it and there's a lot we lost that you know i i was gutted to lose yeah well when you come to rolling cameras in 2017 having i guess already had the idea in an incubation for what four four and a half years or something i could imagine that you had a vision of how it was going to go and then the way that it did it in practical terms was probably quite different yeah, I mean, what what I've learned from documentary making, I think, is that having a plan is a really, really good idea. The more prep you do, um, the smoother things go. But you also have to be completely open to the story going in in, in new and unexpected ways. I, I see films sometimes and I can see that the directors had a specific idea of the story they want to tell and they're determined to do that regardless of, of where it should actually go. And so it's, it's that combination. You know, there's a, a famous documentary saying, I can't remember who, who, who said it, but that if, you, if you end up with the film you set out to make, you're not doing it right. And I think that is... <laughs> that's good. I think that's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, definitely. And was there anything or what were the things that sort of were coming up, um, if you can say specifically, uh, when you started interviewing the brothers or as uh, you started rolling camera that made things, you know, take a left or a right turn that you, you may not have foreseen? Um, the, there's a range of stuff. I mean, there's the big stuff, like people we didn't think would talk or we didn't even know about their existence. Um, like there's a there's a an, an older lady who kind of appears right at the halfway point of the film um, and sort of sheds a lot of light on what has gone on. And we we didn't even know of her existence when we started the film. Um, so that was that was a real um, left turn when we found her. Um, but then also little details. I mean, I, I quite like the little stuff that comes out. So, you know, I thought I knew their story inside out, their, the backstory of the brothers. But um, one of them, uh, Bobby, who's the first guy you see in the film, he just started riffing on this car that he had, um, this old Volvo that he was driving to college in at the start. And, and that became the start of the film. You know, this guy's in his old piece of junk car driving driving to college. 
and it kind of became a signifier of the kind of class differences between the brothers you know like what kind of car they were driving how well they'd done in their lives because that's what you know when when people meet when the when these reunions happen when people who are twins or triplets meet uh, later in life the first thing they do is compare you know well how's he doing versus how am i doing kind of thing and so that was something that i'd never planned into the kind of story of how i was going to tell their their tale um but it was just a brilliant detail and it was like yeah that's how we're going to start the film so there, there were lots of things like that where they brought detail and color that i i had no way of knowing um was going to come up and what was the what was the post-production process like did you kind of have a hard uh you know um tools down that's a wrap kind of moment or was it you know you were doing pickups or you were kind of still filming as you were editing because you were needing bits and pieces how did that kind of go uh, we were we were very much still filming as we were editing. Uh, it's not something that I want to do again in a hurry. I mean, there are advantages in that you can shape um, shape what you need, which is great, and you, you can go and shoot specific things that you need. Um, but it was really, I, I think the biggest challenge was that the edit was really tight. I mean, we had like 18 weeks, which sounds like a lot, but for a documentary. I mean, I was talking to Asif Kapadia's uh, producer the other day. You know, he made Amy and Senna and films like that. I mean, he has a year in the edit. We had 18 weeks. Um, someone told me soon after I started that the minimum you should have for a feature documentary is about 21 weeks. And um, yeah, we had 18. I, lucky, I've got this really incredible young uh, Irish editor called Michael Hart. It was his first uh, feature, as it, as it was for me and most of the people who worked on it. And he just... Um, work like a dog really and 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 it's very fast uh, anyway and um we just about got it done but it was it was pretty stressful to be honest with you uh, and 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 i had a much lower ratio in terms of the the footage uh, i'd shot to the final uh, outcome than i normally would i mean on the, on more observational films i could shoot easily 200 300 hours for one hour of uh one hour documentary whereas this was probably about i don't know 60 hours maybe 70 for for 90 minutes so it was it was it was brutal how many uh did you do a lot of sessions of interview with the brothers or was it just one really uh, intense session because it appears to be a single done in a single session but i um yeah i was curious about that yeah so we did we did one initial uh, day with each of them Uh, we interviewed them separately and then we did um one much later on where we did a kind of couple of hours with one couple of hours with the other and then a couple of hours with them together um but it was um yeah it was you know i think you need you need at least a day with people uh, for this kind of documentary and um one of the advantages of doing that kind of editing while while still shooting was that when we went back and did the second one we knew bits holes that we were missing in the story and i could be really specific about about what we wanted and we also used that opportunity to present them on camera with some of the the information that we discovered as we were making the film right and so what was it like then for you when you did picture lock was there a kind of an apprehension about you know not being certain whether you've got it all or were you you know really happy and satisfied with with where it was where you got it to how was that process uh, I'm, I'm, I'd never, I'm never satisfied. I'm, I, I would keep tinkering, you know, even, you know, we did some, a little bit of tinkering after Sundance. Um, but it was, I remember we finished super late. We finished like 2am. Um, you know, it was always a rush getting things. And this was, I think we were putting music in at the end, um, and just fiddling with things. 
Um, and yeah, we, we were kind of rushing down to the wire really with it. And um, I, I find it very hard to let, let go with films. I'm always, with documentary, you always feel, oh, we could tweak that a bit more. And I still watch it. I mean, there are a few cuts and tweaks that I would make now if I had the opportunity. So um, it, it was weird. I mean, the... the, the the thing was when it got into you know seeing it at Sundance the, and knowing that I couldn't do anything about the film it was it was what it was and, and seeing it up on screen I, I mean I had no idea how people were going to react and the reaction was so strong I was like oh well maybe maybe I don't need to tweak this anymore but um, that was that was a really probably the most nerve wracking moment of my career you know showing it to six hundred people um, at the Sundance Festival which I'd never been to before. Uh, was was absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it's one of those meccas, I suppose, as well. So there's that added pressure uh, to to have something that's that people are going to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't I, I'd obviously heard of it in the kind of you know legendary '90s uh, era when Tarantino and people like that were playing there, but I didn't really know that much about what it was going to be like. And it's you know it's this tiny little ski resort um, up in the mountains in Utah and. Uh, for for two weeks or ten days, it, it, it's like rammed with Hollywood and agents and all kinds of people from around the world coming to see films, and it's quite an intoxicating atmosphere. Um, and we, yeah, as I say, the first screening. I mean, we had uh, Darren Aronofsky was in the audience. I didn't even know he was there, and he tweeted about it um, <laughs> immediately afterwards, saying, "You know, this film's really disturbed me and is a great watch." Um, and from then on, it just went it went crazy after that. Like all, all the screenings were sold out, and um, it was just as I say, you know, I was out there with the team uh, who made it, and we, we were all. It was our first feature and our first time out there. And every day we'd wake up and be like, "This is the best day of our lives," and then the next day we'd be like, "This is the best day." <laughs> so it was it was pretty fun. Uh, I guess you know something that I like uh, speaking with people on the show is about. The, the way that they would define success either for their career or for a particular project and you know you said at the at the start that you there was no not even a, an inkling of a thought that you know this film would get into Sundance so I suppose when you started out what was your ambition for the film and now how would you define success having you know surpassed 10 million dollars at the US box office and having won all of these different awards it's yeah, I mean, when I look, when I started, I, my goal was just not to screw it up. I I knew that the story was extraordinary, and I, I knew it was probably once in a lifetime uh, story. And I was just like, I, I just felt a duty not to to mess that up. Um, and and it kind of just evolved from there. I mean, that's the thing about success: your scale it just slides, and it's 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 horrible actually, because um, you're always looking for the next thing so like oh it does well at Sundance wow that's that's great and then is the film going to be picked up and then yeah the film's been picked up by a distributor amazing oh how's it going to do at the box office oh it's made 10 million dollars well, that's incredible so what's next is it going to win awards you know and you it's it's very easy to fall into that trap of of just always looking for the next thing and I'm I'm like one of the worst people for that um and actually one of my bosses Bart the guy who made the imposter said to me the other day, you know, you really got to make sure you kind of just stand back every now and then and just go, wow, this has done better than anyone expected. Um, you know, and be, be, be happy with that because at some point it's going to disappoint you. At some point it's going to stop making money at the box office or at some point it's not going to win the award you want it to win. And 
that that failure is just there on the horizon the whole time and actually just trying to live in the moment a bit more with it is is a really important thing and i i'm i'm struggling with that you know i'm i'm trying to just enjoy it for what it is but um i i think the other thing that 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 it's taught me is how arbitrary success is do you know what i mean i i've worked really hard to get where i have but i'm also aware that there's a huge amount of luck that's played uh, a part in this in in the you know this story coming across my desk the film going as well as it did and then and then it being the there being an appetite at the moment for documentaries where five years ago maybe you know half the people or a third of the people who've seen this film would have seen it um and and that's quite weird to kind of reconcile in your head because you know i'm now at the position where people are coming up to me offering me projects and going, you should direct this you should direct that you know do this for us or whatever whatever you want to do you can do and as I say, you know, when I started this project, I was probably way down the bottom of the list of people to to do this, and it's quite um, it kind of plays with your head a bit because you're just like I'm I'm exactly the same person I was before, but no one would give me a chance then, and everyone will give me a chance now, and you kind of realise it makes me feel very differently about um, people who you know come into the company I work at and kind of really passionate and pitch their ideas. I I, I try and be a bit more. Um, open to them even if they have very little experience because that that kind of the, the success of this film has taught me how how kind of um yeah arbitrary that whole definition of who's who's good enough to to make something is the, yeah the whole kind of meritocracy i guess of the uh film institution particularly i think yeah, from the inside of a big machine is you know filling each filling a quota of uh, of names in inverted commas yeah i mean i think the whole media industry works very much on um compartmentalizing things and being um it's a it's you know it's risk averse when money is involved in creativity people are risk averse and they want something that they can um they can at least if it all goes wrong they can say well we hired this person because of because they've done this, you know, and it's, it's kind of, they're justifying their, their choices. Um, so, and I understand that and it's important and people's track records are important. I just think for me, seeing the kind of seismic difference in how I'm perceived now versus how I was before this film is, is quite kind of shocking in, in some ways. Cause I, you know, I always believed in myself, but no one would give me the opportunity. And now, uh, lots of people will give me an opportunity and it's, it's just strange, you know, um, to be in that position I, I'm, I'm very thankful i am but it but uh, but i'm also thinking oh god i wish someone had given me this opportunity maybe 15 years ago you know i, yeah. I think i still could have made a really good film then yeah but i suppose like you say it's there's, there's a certain element of luck that that comes with it all and and then i suppose it's what you do with that position um and how you how you do evolve your career De- definitely. I mean, I think um, you've got to take the breaks you, you, you get. Um, absolutely. But, you know, if there are people listening to this thinking, um, I'm really, you know, I've got this great idea for, you know, a film or a book or whatever, you know, it's like, um, I, I just think the fact that you haven't been given the, the opportunity that you feel you deserve doesn't um, doesn't mean that you, you aren't capable of doing something that will be really successful. I mean, I think that's what what I've learned, you can start thinking, well, I'm not being given these opportunities. Maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe there's this kind of different breed of people who are, who are like really good at stuff and I'm not one of them. Um, and that, 
what my experience has taught me is just that you know it is about opportunity and luck and you know hopefully if you keep plugging away you get you get the opportunities yeah there's there's certainly no accounting for that hard work and and i guess determination um to kind of couple with talent and and self-belief yeah ab- look, absolutely i mean you know i've worked incredibly hard and and most people in this industry that i've come across have been successful have have done that but then there are people i know who work incredibly hard and and haven't been fortunate uh, as i have to have opportunities like with with this film and it's kind of um it's kind of like you know realizing that there is an element that's outside of your control and you have to kind of reconcile your, yourself to that i think when you when you're a filmmaker i think also look the, the, the development side of things that i've done um this film is it was was helpful this film is not just about the, the success of this film for me wasn't just about um me being a decent director or whatever it was that i was i'd done all this development of ideas so i would i knew what would um work as a film and i had a very clear idea about what films would be were interesting and what subjects were interesting so when i saw this i was like i absolutely knew because i'd done it for so long this is an idea that stands above all others um, and I think that was helpful. And I think the, the more you're exposed to kind of ideas and, and developing ideas um, as, 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 a, as a filmmaker, the, the better, because you get a sense of that side. Uh, you, you get a, a sense of that side of the business and about really kind of working out which ideas are worth pursuing and which aren't. Totally. And so is there anything uh, on the on the horizon for you now uh, or are you still riding this train? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, there are a few things. Um, I'm really interested in, in trying to do something, a fully scripted project. Um, as, a, as I mentioned to you, that's where I kind of started off and, and I'm really keen to, to do that, but also open to kind of documentary projects as well, you know, and finding the, just finding, I, I think I've reconciled myself to the fact that I'm probably not going to find a story quite as, a real life story quite as extraordinary as this one. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely interested in, in, in seeing what other projects are out there. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for jumping on the call at uh, the crack of dawn in, uh, in, in London. Um, I, uh, I end all of my conversations with the same question, Tim. The question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Oh, my God. That is, that is left field. Um, <laughs> the thing that can really make me silly is my son. Um, I've got a three-year-old son who was born during the making of this film and, and shaped uh, some of the narrative in the film. If you go and see it, you'll you'll understand uh, what, what I'm talking about. But um, he can get me to behave in ways that are just completely ridiculous and I kind of lose my sense of myself. And every now and then I'll catch myself or someone will have photographed it or shot some video of it. And I'll be like, what was I doing? All sense of kind of self and... Uh, self-respect and decency have kind of gone out the window um i just find myself performing like a clown for him right is there anything specifically that you do that that he uh, that he enjoys i mean it's like whatever will make him laugh so if it involves me kind of throwing food at myself or like dancing ridiculously or like i don't know stripping off whatever it is that makes him laugh i'll, I'll, I'll do it so um yeah you kind of find yourself you occasionally you kind of catch yourself and go well what, what, how, how have I ended up in this position where I would, I would, I would humiliate myself like this for another person? But um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of, I guess, the joy of having kids or one of the good things about having kids. Great. Thank you so much, Tim. No problems. Good to talk to you.